Well, I want to welcome you to Southwinds this morning. We're so glad that you are here. And I want to invite you uh, to get your Bibles open or turn your Bibles on uh, to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be verses 16 through 34 this morning. As you're getting there, uh, let me just remind you, if you don't know already, we have 100 guys, 100 men who are up in the, uh, the mountains around Sonora, a couple hours from here in our retreat this weekend. Uh, they are in the process even right now of wrapping everything up. It's been a good, uh, a good weekend uh, apart. And uh, there's a picture from our worship on, on Friday night. Uh, all of our pastors were there for at least part of the retreat. Uh, Pastor Chris Martinez is uh, taking things down through the finish line uh, today. And so just keep them in your prayers that God will use uh, what has happened during this weekend uh, to really impact those lives and make a difference out into the future. Uh, today's message is entitled, Meeting Postmodern People Where They Are. And uh, it's going to be a very important message, a very different message, I think, for us, because what we see here in this passage and what Paul does is uniquely helpful, I think, for showing us how to live today in the 21st century, how to live as sent people. That's the theme of the book of Acts for us. How to live as sent people in an increasingly diverse and increasingly secular culture. Now, Paul, uh, we, we know as we read this, is now in the city of Athens. And what we're going to see today is, is Paul, the master evangelist at work. Paul is just this incredibly versatile evangelist. He's so flexible, so adaptable. He actually reminds me of a guy who played briefly for the Oakland A's uh, just a couple of years ago. His name was Pat Venditti. And if you're a baseball fan, uh, you may remember because he was sort of unique. Uh, uh, this guy, Pat Venditti, was a switch pitcher. In other words, he pitched with both hands. He used a six-finger glove so he could shift the glove uh, from one hand to the other. And he could throw 90 miles an hour from the left or from the right. Uh, one announcer at one point said, he's amphibious. I think he meant ambidextrous. <laughs> and uh, we're going to see today that Paul was an ambidextrous evangelist. We've watched him uh, most of the time in Acts on his journeys. He goes into the synagogue and he there throws gospel strikes uh, to people who know something about the Old Testament. He starts with the scriptures. And we're going to see today that he does something different. He goes into the marketplace. He, he talks to Gentile pagans, people who have an entirely different worldview, no clue who Moses is, no idea about any of God's revelation, his law that was given to his people, the Jews. And Paul just switches hands and he throws strikes, gospel strikes in the marketplace. Uh, this is so important for us today because all of us in our lives are encountering different types of people. And you need to know that sometimes you're going to talk to synagogue people. You're going to talk to people who know something about God, something about Jesus, something about the Bible. But more and more often in our 21st century culture, you will be talking to marketplace people, people who know little, if anything, about the Bible. And for us to be truly sent as God has called us to, it is vital that we know the people that we are engaging with, that we be able to talk to them, that we be able to share truth with them in a way that they can understand. It is not enough for us to communicate clearly in our understanding. If they don't get it, we need to meet them where they are. And we're going to talk in a few uh, moments uh, uh, more about what postmodern people are, who they are, what they believe. Uh, but I want you to keep in mind that this passage really is very important in, 
in Luke's narrative because it's, it's, it's fleshing out this Gentile mission uh, that Paul is on. And we're going to see some very important truths about Paul's method, methodology, I think even more importantly about Paul's heart. And uh, this is so vital for us because if you've never realized it, I hope by today, the end of the day, you will understand that we live in a day that is more like Athens than maybe we've ever thought. Now, I want to show you a map of uh, where Paul is on his journey, where Athens is located as we continue to make our way through this second missionary journey of Paul's. Uh, One writer said that when Paul got there, Athens was in the, quote, late afternoon of her glory. Uh, The golden age of Athens had actually taken place in the 5th century B.C., and it really was an amazing era historically. Some of you know about this. Uh, During that that time in Athens, they developed the very first true democracy. That's where it started. Uh, Athens had kind of this who's who in almost every major category of Western civilization. Uh, Hippocrates, the father of Western medicine, lived there in the 5th century B.C., Uh, They had the fathers of history, Herodotus and Thucydides. They were there during that time. Socrates, the father of philosophy who taught Plato, who taught Aristotle, uh, was there during that that time. And it just went on and on and on. The architecture, the art, uh, the sculpture, uh, still things that amaze us so much. And there are some of you who traveled there and you've seen the Parthenon and the other ancient amazing buildings and the sculptures that are there. And Paul arrives to this place and it is still beautiful. It's still the intellectual capital of the world, but it's not quite what it used to be. And so what is Paul going to do? Well, verse 16, as we're going to see, says he's waiting on his friends because he had been run out of town in Berea, as you heard last week. And he comes to Athens, this great city, and he begins to walk around. He begins to encounter people. And as he does, he encounters a lot of people who are intellectual skeptics. They're very intelligent people, but they are biblically illiterate. And many of us encounter people like this today. That's why this is so relevant. How is Paul going to engage them? This is what we want to see. I want to point out to you this morning four things that we do when postmodern people, when we meet those people where they are. Here's the first thing. You can write this down in your message notes. Number one, we share God's heart for our culture. See, if we're going to meet postmodern people where they are, we need to have God's heart for our culture. Look what we see in verse 16. Uh, It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, there are two things, broad strokes, I'm going to point out to you in this verse, what Paul sees and what Paul feels. So keep that in mind. What's the first thing that Paul sees? What catches his attention? Well, it wasn't the history. It wasn't the beauty. It wasn't the architecture or the art uh, of Athens that first struck Paul. While Paul surely admired those things, uh, what struck him most in that city was the idolatry that he saw. And this is true because Paul saw Athens through God's eyes. You see, when you become a Christian, when you become a follower of Christ, it is not like you just add a thing or two, going to church, doing some activities to your life. If you truly come to Christ, everything about your life changes You begin to see all of life differently. Uh, You get, as it's sometimes called, a new world view. And when you enter into the life of Christ and you begin to get this new world view, what you will find happening is that it it will become like Christ followers. We're wearing a a different set of glasses than non-Christians. Now, we can enjoy many of the same things that are in the world, but we will, in Christ, see those things differently. 
And so our worldview will mean that we listen to music differently, we appreciate art differently, we enjoy sports differently, we view business and economics and money differently, we look at race differently, we see those in poverty differently, we view the oceans and the mountains differently, we, we view sex differently, marriage differently, we, we think of food and drink differently, we even view death differently. And we see the world differently because we are seeing the world through the lens of God's revelation in creation, in the scriptures, and ultimately in his son, Jesus Christ. Paul had this kind of worldview, and it determined how he saw everything. But when he gets to Athens, what he is encountering is people with very different worldviews. And I want you to notice the plural there, where there wasn't just one worldview in Athens. There were many different worldviews. Now, some of you may be asking right now, well, what exactly is a worldview? I'm going to give you a, a kind of an academic definition and a good book on this subject. Uh, this book defines worldview as this. I'll quote, an articulation of the basic beliefs embedded in a shared grand story that are rooted in a faith commitment and that gives shape and direction to the whole of our individual and corporate lives. Some of you are going, you lost me there. Okay, I'm going to give you a definition for the Raider fans in the room right now, okay? <laughs> a worldview is the basic beliefs you have about reality. That's it. Sum it up. And those beliefs are embedded in a grand narrative. In other words, they're part of a story. We all live according to a story that we have in our minds, uh, the story that we use to understand the big questions of life. And if you're a Christian, that worldview will always begin with God as creator. It will end with God's consummation of the entire creation. Uh, there's usually four headings that Christian thinkers put to a Christian worldview. They are creation and then fall and then redemption and then new creation. And here's what I want you to understand. You have people in your life, might even be your neighbor, might even be someone in your family, and they see the world in a totally different way from you. They have fundamentally different beliefs. Uh, there's a book I have in my library called the, the Universe Next Door. And the idea of this book, it's been out for about 30 years, is that uh, you could have a neighbor living next door to you that sees the entire universe in a different way because they have a different set of glasses. Make sense? Yes. And uh, the basic questions that every worldview has to answer uh, have to do with these things, origin and meaning morality, and destiny. In other words, origin. Uh, where do we come from? Everybody has some ideas about that. Then meaning. Uh, why are we here? What's the purpose of life? Then morality. Everybody has thoughts about this. You know, what's right? What's wrong? You know, how do you live, in other words? And then finally, destiny. Where is this all going? Everybody has some thoughts about this, uh, well-articulated maybe or not, but everybody does. That is a worldview. And you need to keep in mind the Bible answers those big questions differently than other worldviews. This is why we should not be surprised when people make decisions that we, we don't agree with. You know, when they think of ways in totally uh, opposite ways to us, we have an entirely different starting point. We have an entirely different authority that we are drawing on to try to live according to. And see, this is what hits Paul. Paul goes into the city. I'm sure he admires the things that he saw, but what struck him the most to the core is that this city was full of idols. You say, well, what is an idol? Well, a good definition of idol is anything you use to give you what only Jesus 
can give you. And I want us to be very clear on this. You don't need a, a pagan shrine in your house to be an idolater. In fact, the Bible would say all of us, every single one of us, by nature, we are idolaters. Idolatry is in our hearts. In fact, I'm just going to help you with this right now. We're all going to say together, I am an idolater sometimes, okay? I am an idolater sometimes. And if you don't want to say that, then it means, at very least, you don't understand the nature of sin. Because the Bible describes sin in terms of idolatry, and and all sin is wrapped up in idolatry. And this is what what people that we are dealing with are still enmeshed in. John Calvin, the reformer, once said, the heart is an idol factory. We're always cranking them out, always manufacturing idols. And, And today, those idols could be things like career or money or sex, family, power, fame, on and on and on. And many times you'll notice that idols are good things. Typically, the better a thing is, the more likely we are to make that thing an idol. What we do is we take good things and we turn them into ultimate things. But what happens? What happens when you chase something other than Jesus? Well, what happens, according to the Bible, is your sorrows just multiply. That's what it says in Psalm 16. When you begin to move away from the true creator, you go after another, you're not winning, you're losing. And that's why we as followers of Christ should grieve when people are not worshiping Jesus because we know they're not having freedom. As we just sang, we know they're slaves to fear. Here's what I'm trying to get across. For us to be effective in sharing the gospel, we must meet people where they are. And that means in our culture today, we need to be able to discern what the idols are in our city, in our neighborhood, what the people that we are actually talking to, what they actually trust in and hope in. And then we need to grow in our ability to deconstruct those idols, to show those idols for what they truly are, and then to show those people that we are reaching out to how Jesus alone will satisfy Here's what you need to know. To be able to do that, our culture's idols must provoke us. Paul looks at the city full of idols, and it says in the NIV he was greatly distressed. A maybe more literal reading of that would be he was provoked. And it's one thing to see the world in a different way through different glasses, but it's another thing to be burdened by it. And here's the reality. There are a lot of Christians who have some basic understanding about the fundamental differences with how we as Christians view the world, how we answer life's big questions, and how the world does those things. They understand that, but they don't really care. And I may be talking to someone who's here right now, and that's honestly where you are. Don't really care. They're not really burdened by it. They're not willing to adjust or adapt their life in any way to that reality. They know it's there, but they don't care. And what makes Paul such a great missionary and evangelist here, he not only sees these things differently, but he feels these things deeply. He's like Jesus. Jesus was a man of sorrows. Paul is distressed. Paul is provoked. John Stott, the great scholar, pastor, Uh, writes, the reason we can't speak the way Paul speaks is that we don't feel what Paul feels. And the reason we don't feel what Paul feels is we don't see what Paul sees. And so we read that Paul was distressed or Paul was provoked. We we, we can also translate this this phrase or this word as deeply troubled. And and many people, uh, many people read this uh, just to mean anger. And there is anger involved, but you need to understand 
It's much more complex than that. In fact, I, I would define uh, being provoked as a unique combination of, of indignation and compassion. Indignation and compassion. I think the best way to understand what Paul is saying, this, this verb, is to look at the Old Testament. There's actually a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was common in the New Testament day. And when you go to that version of the Old Testament, you see this word showing up to describe how God feels about idolatry. When the Israelites worshipped idols, they provoked the Lord to righteous anger. But we clearly see in these passages that God's anger was always mingled with love. See, when God said, I'm provoked by your idol worship, he is deeply angry at the dishonor of idolatry. But at the same time, his jealousy means I love you. I want you in my arms, not in the arms of that. It's both. God has a holy love for his people. And Paul has this uh, righteous indignation for God's name. At the same time, he has this uh, brokenhearted compassion for the people who worship false gods. And if you think about it, that means that Paul was being motivated by love for God and love for neighbor. And didn't Jesus say those are the first two commandments? That's how we're supposed to live. You know, we know that Paul had both of these things by the way he reacts. You're going to see this as we keep going through the passage. Paul didn't stand up in the marketplace and just scream, you're filthy idolaters, condemn them. He reasons with them. He dialogues with them. And he did it so well. The reason Paul was as effective as he is, we're going to see that, is he had both indignation and compassion. And if you have one or the other, it just doesn't work. If you're, if you're not filled with indignation, then you will not have the courage to go into the marketplace and do what he did. And if you only have indignation but you don't have compassion, then you won't care. And no one will think you care. You won't be able to listen to their questions. You won't have a chance of understanding them. They'll just turn you off. You see, we're, we're to be people, sent people, who learn to do both of these things. Has anyone else noticed that, like out there in the world, the vast majority of everything that Christians seem to say in the public realm is either obnoxious or cowardly? Have you noticed that? One or the other? And there's some of us, we're so busy protesting, so busy critiquing, so busy judging what is sinful in our culture that all anyone around us knows is what we're against. And some of you are thinking, amen to that. Per, per, people who think that, you may need to hear this next thing. Some of us are so busy backpedaling from anything offensive in the gospel, we're backpedaling so fast because we don't think we should ever offend anyone. We think that anytime anybody gets offended at something in the Bible, there's something wrong with us. That's not true either. See, we need both indignation and compassion. We, we need to be people who are not enamored by the culture so much that we get sucked into it and we try to join it just to be accepted. Or also, we, on the other hand, need to not be people who are so offended by the culture, so repulsed by it, that we just run away from it. Paul did neither of those things. The idolatry that he saw in Athens broke his heart, but he didn't run in fear and hatred, and he didn't join in trying to be accepted. The idolatry didn't intimidate him, but it also didn't seduce him. It provoked him, and because of that, he ran straight toward the people, seeking to engage their idolatry, longing to show them the true God's heart. And here's the thing. If we don't get that, if we don't live that, it means we have a problem in our hearts. We haven't understood how to display the gospel. You say, well, how do you do this? 
Well, here's a question I will ask. When you think about what I'm describing, you know, this, this uh, indignation and compassion, uh, this beauty of uh, saying both truthfulness at the same time you, you might be tearful about it. Who, who did this best? Think about it. Who did this best? See, this is church, okay? So what would the answer likely be? <laughs> this time you're right. It's Jesus. Jesus, think about this. Jesus rebuked people boldly. Jesus said some stuff that like we would never want to say. We, well, I couldn't say that, right? Sometimes that's how he spoke. And yet at the same time, wasn't he the most gentle person who ever lived? See, Isaiah once wrote of the truth-telling, truth-embodying Messiah that was to come. He said, a bruised reed he will not break. And so how can we meet postmodern people where we are? Well, we, we need both a deep commitment to truth and a deep compassion to people. And we need to want to have this heart if we don't have it. If you don't have it, do you want it? You say, how do I get it? Well, let me tell you, it's really simple to understand how, but it takes a lot of work. Are you ready for the answer to how? Yes. Meditate on the cross. That's how. Meditate on the cross of Jesus. You see, at the cross of Jesus, we see both God's absolute commitment to perfect holiness and at the same time, we see God's unfathomable compassion for sinners. Amen? And the more we think about the cross, the more we will grow in truthfulness and tears and gentleness and boldness, the more we will grow in both holiness and love. You see, Paul saw the world differently because he, and he felt differently about the idols of the world because he had a worldview that was radically cross-centered. And if you and I don't have the cross central in our worldview, then we will end up at one place or the other, at one pole or the other. We need, we need to have both indignation and compassion. It's the cross that gives us the heart we need to truly engage with postmodern people, with the Athenians that are in our lives. Here's the second thing. Uh, we get to know the heart of our culture. Uh, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, what was Paul's response to being provoked by all these these idols, all this idolatry he saw. I want you to notice this. I want you to get this. He went straight toward the idolatry. Notice that Luke tells us he, he doesn't just go to the synagogues. He doesn't just go to where the, the God of the Bible was worshipped. He does do that. But the general, the main thrust of this passage is that Paul takes his faith to the marketplace day by day. And what this tells us is that if we're going to get to know the heart of our culture, we must go to where culture is created and lived out. We have to be in the world enough to understand it. Now, I get this from uh, this word that is uh, translated marketplace. It's the Greek word agora. Uh, I think about the only word we know today is agoraphobia. That's like a fear of crowds. Uh, but that's where this comes from. And, and we need to understand what's going on here. It's not exactly what you're going to think at first. Uh, the Agora in Athens was really the very center of that city's culture. And as I've been telling you, Athens was this cultural capital of the world. And the marketplace was at Athens' heart. Uh, one scholar writes, on or just off the marketplace were temples, law courts, state offices, public archives, libraries, shops, concert halls, dance halls, gymnasiums, theaters, and galleries. In other words, everything was there. 
And if you wanted to experience any of those things, you had to go there. They did not have the internet. I know that's hard to imagine. (laughs) There were no smartphones back there. And so you went to the marketplace for everything. There were politicians and city officials dialoguing. There were judges and lawyers deliberating. There were artists creating. There were deal-making businessmen everywhere in the Agora. If you wanted the day's news, you had to go to the Agora because the heralds, that was like the news media that day, they were there declaring the news. The philosophers, the academics, they were there debating. Everything was face-to-face. In other words, everything happened in the marketplace. And it's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around this because we don't have anything like this anymore. But this was the public space, the center of everything. It was the place you shop for everything. It was the marketplace of ideas, the marketplace of everything. It was where the culture was shaped. And this is where Paul takes the gospel. One of the things that's important to understand from this is that Paul was confident enough in the gospel that he would take it out there. He believed the gospel would thrive. And there's a lot of us, we don't have that confidence. We don't think we can take it out there. We need to have that confidence. It's God's truth. The gospel can survive. The gospel can thrive in the marketplace. The next thing that I want you to see is we need to understand how our culture thinks. So we need to go where culture is created Uh, lived out, but we also need to understand how our culture thinks. And this is where I think many Christ followers fall short today, in part because culture is shifting so rapidly. I just want to ask you a question to think about. Do you understand our postmodern culture? Now, some of you may be saying, well, I don't even know if I know what postmodernism is. Well, I will tell you, it is a very complex subject, a very deep subject, and it we honestly do not have the time to explore it fully today. I could spend hours just on this alone. But I do want to say a couple things about it, and I do want to tell you that all of us should take time to learn how our friends, how our neighbors, how our coworkers, and for many of us, how our children actually really think. I will tell you as a pastor that I am aware that as I preach Teach the Bible Sunday by Sunday. There are many of you who maybe uh, consciously or unconsciously have absorbed many of the ideas of our culture. It's increasingly common in church. What does postmodernism look like? What do postmodern people think? Well, they think, among other things, that truth is relative. They think that there are no moral absolutes. They think, because of this, that tolerance is the preeminent virtue Most important virtue in the world today used to be love. Today, it's tolerance. They think, postmodern people do, that that truth is something that we all determine personally. And because of that, they think that when anyone tries to make any sort of truth claim, in other words, to say this is true or or that is true, when anyone tries to do that and and tries to say that 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 truth applies to other people, postmodern people think you're just trying to power up. You're just trying to dominate someone else. You're just trying to oppress. That's how they think. They think when you make those claims that what really is happening is you're just being intolerant. See, this is underneath, these kinds of thoughts, this is underneath why people today think that that anyone in our culture today who does not think that all religions are equally valid, anyone who does not think that homosexuality, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, that these are equally valid, acceptable ways of life, they think that if you don't think these things and you are hateful, you are intolerant, you are phobic. 
And we need to understand this is where people are coming from. I think it's interesting, you know, we kind of live in strange times. Until not too long ago, Christianity was under fire at most universities in our secular culture because people said it's unscientific and therefore untrue. But today, Christianity is widely rejected merely because it claims to be true. And increasingly, our academics, people in our universities, and this is spreading across our culture, they regard anyone claiming to know any objective or any universal truth, they regard that person as intolerant and arrogant and a bigot. You need to understand and begin to grapple with the reality that's what many, many people think of you if you hold to the classic truths of Christianity. One of the things that's very common in our culture is that our culture says that faith is private. Let me just ask you, how many of you have had somebody tell you at some time in your life, well, faith is private. You shouldn't really talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. Have you ever heard that? Raise your hand if you have. I just want to see. A whole lot of us have heard that from people. Do you know the Bible doesn't say that at all, ever? The Bible is clear that real faith is intensely personal, but it is never private. It can never be private. Now, Proverbs 1, 20 and 21, I think Paul may have had this, these verses in mind when he, he went out to the marketplace. It says, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice, and at the head of the noisy street, she cries out. See, the reason that this idea that religion is for the public square, that our faith is for the marketplace, the reason that surprises people today is that we are pagans again. And what I mean by this is paganism has always said everyone has their own little territorial God. God here, God there, a God over there, that God over here, here a God, there a God, everywhere a God, God. The God of Athens, the God of Ephesus, the God of business people, the God for fishermen. Everyone has their own God. And if that's the case, then the fishermen can't tell the businessman what to do because they have different gods. The, the, the Ephesian can't speak to the Athenian. They have different gods. And yet that is not what we believe because we believe in creator God who made everything that is. And see, we go to the center of culture because we believe that God is central to everything. We believe that God is the creator of the heavens and earth who spoke the universe into existence by the word of his power. And if that is true, and it is, then he has something to say to everyone about everything in every culture. By the way, Sharing God's heart with a lost culture will require a thick skin. I hope you know that. Because people today are going to still do to you what they did to Paul back in Athens. Verse 18, it says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And I want to pause right there for just a moment to, to talk about these philosophies that Paul was engaging because they really do give us some insight to what we're dealing with today. What, what type of philosophers was he speaking to? Well, Luke mentions two particular schools of thought, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophies. And I want you to think about these as I describe them briefly and see how they connect to much of what we see today. The, the Epicureans were materialists. And by this, this means that they just believed that 
all of life was summed up in matter, in physical things. They believed the body, the soul even, was composed of matter, and that would dissolve after death. That means when you die, they thought you're just plant food. And you know, if you believe that, then who cares what you do on this earth? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you are plant food. Now, the Epicureans that believed that there were some gods, but they were kind of way, way far out there. They, they really weren't engaged in human uh, actions in life. And different, they were indifferent to us. They, they believed the gods lived these lives of luxury and, and pleasure, and therefore they thought that's what life is about. This is why we use the word Epicurean today to speak about someone who's really interested in the good life. You know, they enjoy fine uh, food and wine and all those sorts of things. And so they were materialists. That easily leads to hedonism, which is so common today. Focus uh, on the here and now. Do what feels good. No moral accountability. No one's going to judge what you do here on this earth. That's the Epicureans. And then the Stoics. They were pantheists. In other words, they they believed that the divine was everything. That's what pantheism means. There's no distinction between a God of any kind and the creation. They are one and the same. Pantheists thought there was this divine principle. They called it the logos. Sound familiar? They thought the logos held everything together. This is what John is tapping into in this gospel to communicate with that world. They, They thought that we're somehow all part of this cosmic system. And they thought the way you lived is you live by reason. You know, you think everything through. They're rational in how they approach life. And, and because there really are no ultimate answers, they thought you just have to grin and bear it, regardless of circumstances. It's a very pessimistic worldview. This life is all there is. They thought history is cyclical, so you just keep doing the same thing over and over. It's not going anywhere. And what you need to understand is Paul's sermon is flying in the face of both those worldviews. What you need to understand is that both of those worldviews, at least elements of them, are very common today. Secular skeptics, rationalists, materialists, they think this life is all that there is. There's a lot of people in our culture today who are pantheistic in their thinking. Many of them have come from other cultures where they have pantheistic religions. You know about some of those. But then a lot of Western European types have adopted some of those ideas as well. And there's no one who seems to care about ultimate truth or meaning or salvation. You know, our culture, we're just living for the the here and the now. And we just need to understand what is going on all around us so that we can connect with these people, so that we can talk to them. But as we do, we need to know that they may not treat us real well. That word babbler, let me go back to that, was a very derogatory term. It was literally a word that meant a seed picker. And the idea of the word was of a bird that's walking around, pecking at the ground, picking up a seed here, picking up a seed there. The idea, if you're a seed picker, you're just a babbler. You're you're sharing these ideas you've grabbed from all these different places. You haven't really assimilated them. They're not really coherent. They think that Paul is a second-class mind. But the reality is that the problem was not with Paul. The reality is the problem was with them. They did not understand Paul. And we see here that there are just two things we should keep in mind when we engage postmodern people where they are. First, we should be willing to be insulted. Are you willing? It's going to come with the territory, and let me tell you why I know that. Jesus was insulted. Paul was insulted. Are you better than Jesus and Paul? Case closed. Right? Second, we shouldn't be surprised when we're misunderstood. 
again, different worldviews. People are coming at the things we're talking about from totally different vantage points. And there will be people in our culture, so many of them, who will think that because you follow Christ, because you believe the Bible, that you are a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal and that you deep in your heart want to marry your sister. That's what they're going to say and think about you. They will assume you have a second-class mind. Will we get discouraged? Will we get angry? Or will we just accept? It has always been that way. They said it about Paul. They said it about Jesus. Get over it. And I know this is hard, but we do these things. We accept these things because we want to be like our Lord Jesus. We do these things because we love people. This is just what love does. You say, why would you say that about what love does? Well, simply, that's because what Jesus did with you. Do you understand that? Jesus saw your idolatry and he was provoked by your idolatry, but he did not run away from you. He did not try to be accepted by you. He ran straight to you. He ran straight to you, confronted you with the futility of your idolatry so that you could see the extent of God's love for you. That's what Jesus did for you. Will you do that for other people? You will if you want to be like Jesus. Let me take you to the third thing. We see our culture's idolatry and we do something about it. We have to if we want to meet postmodern people where they are. You know, Paul saw idols under everything. And you could say, well, they, they were everywhere. Somebody once said uh, that there were more idols in Athens than there were people. I mean, they were everywhere. But the word that Luke uses for sea is not the, the, the basic Greek word for that, that action. He uses a Greek word that's pronounced theoreo, and we get our word theory or theorize from it. And the idea is that you look deeply, you see underneath. In other words, Paul didn't just rail at sin. He looked at and he thought about deeply what he was seeing. He realized that idolatry was underneath, driving the sin of the people in that culture. And he responded accordingly. Verse 22, it says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, let me stop right there and ask you, is that a compliment or an insult? And the answer is, it's the beauty of it. You don't know. Because the word for religious could mean spiritual, which would be sort of a compliment. But it could also mean superstitious, which is not a compliment. And I kind of think Paul maybe had a little bit of a twinkle in his eye as he laid out this double entendre, you are very religious. And the Athenian people probably said, yes, we are. Thank you for noticing. <laughs> Paul says for verse 23, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, this was their just in case God. Do you have a just in case God? <laughs> this was like just in case the real God didn't get covered in all their thousands of statues. Here's to you, unknown God. Just covering our bases. And what's more, Paul was looking around the Parthenon and he was seeing all these, these images of idols. They were images of struggle and it represented their struggle to figure life out, to make life work. And Paul saw in these a struggle for God. He says to them, now, what you worship is something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. He is saying to them, I can see that you're struggling. I can see you want to know this God that you don't quite know yet. And this is the God I'm telling you about right now. How does Paul respond to their idolatry? I want you to notice this. Several things. Very important. First, he starts with their questions. And this is 
quite different from his typical approach when he goes to a synagogue, reasoning from the scriptures to prove that Jesus is Messiah. You may notice if you read carefully, Paul doesn't open the Bible here at the Areopagus. Why? Because they don't accept the authority of scripture. And some of us have encountered that. We've told people, well, the Bible says, and to us that is so powerful. We hear the Bible says, and we think I got to rearrange my life. And they say, so what? That's your point of view. Don't share it. If it works for you, fine. Paul understood that just saying the Bible says is not going to connect with these people. And so he didn't start there. He started with their questions. And again, the only way he could do that is he had to know what their questions were. And again, I want to ask us, do we have any idea about any of the questions that the people around us in our culture are asking? Second thing Paul does is he finds common ground. Paul knows that we are all incurably religious because he knows that God created us, every one of us, to worship and know him. Uh, Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in our hearts. This means, hear me, all people are asking questions about God, even if they don't think they are, even if they don't think they believe in a God. Everybody is searching for meaning. And some of us don't connect with people around us because we just think to ourselves, oh, we have nothing in common. But if we will get outside of church and spend time with people far from God and really listen to them, we will find that people everywhere are asking questions and we will see God put those questions in their hearts. And it is part of our job, if we're going to obey faithfully the Great Commission and be sent people to learn how to identify and to connect with people according to those questions. Paul doesn't stop there. Thirdly, he, he points out logical problems with their approach to God. Verses 24 to 26 says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And he just asks, he says, think about it, people. Does it make sense that the God who created everything could be contained in a building or would need you to put out food for him? That's what they did with their sacrifices. Here's dinner, oh God. And he's just saying this doesn't make any sense. He goes on, from one man, he made every nation of men and that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. In other words, he is demonstrating to them the, the glory of God by contrasting the true God with their idea that God is this little territorial tribal God. These thousands of gods that they had, each with a different sphere. God, Paul is just saying, hey, the real God he is not some tribal deity with this limited jurisdiction. You know, the, the God of Athens or the God of the sea or the God of good crops or the God of good sex. He says the real God is the creator of the whole earth and every nation. He's telling them this. And along with that, he's showing them that the greatest pursuit in life is to find and know that God. You know, one of the things we need to understand, and we see it illustrated here in Athens and in Greek and Roman culture, is that idols are always a means for people to get some other thing. We use idols for our own ends. You worship and you serve something because you want something they would give you. It's always that way with our idols. Uh, for example, Artemis, uh, she was the goddess of prosperity and money. And if you wanted prosperity, you would go to her temple and you would make offerings. And then there was Athena. She was the goddess of wisdom and politics. And in the temple... Uh, uh, they, the, her temple, they had this picture of Zeus's head and it's being split open and she's coming out of his head 
And the idea there is, you know, that's where wisdom would come from. So if you wanted to be smart, if you wanted to have wisdom, you would worship her. You would make offerings to her. They had a goddess named Nike. It's exactly what you're thinking about. This is a goddess of victory. Uh, worship for centuries by athletes and warriors, by Michael Jordan and LeBron. Um, she would make you run faster, jump higher, conquer the competition. I've also heard she was deeply into shoes. Um, Aphrodite, she was the goddess of sexuality, of beauty, of fertility. And if you wanted good sex, you would worship her. You would make offerings. And then there was this goddess that you probably haven't heard of, most of you. Her name was Cloacina. And she was the goddess, I kid you not, of the sewer system. I've seen a picture of her statue. I'm not sure what she was worshipped for. I'm even more confused of like how you might make an offering to her. <laughs> don't want to know, honestly. I don't know. Sometimes we light candles in our bathrooms. Uh, maybe that counts. <laughs> but what you should see in all of this is this. All of these gods were a means to something else, to prosperity or power or wisdom or sex, smoother bowel movements, whatever's important <laughs> to you. You worship a God to get that thing. And Paul is just saying to these people, the real God is so glorious and transcendent that he is his own reward. He is not to be sought as a means for something else. And Paul says to these people, you know that. That's why you have an altar to an own none God. You know there's something else out there that is better than power or money or sex. You know that your approach to life isn't working for you. That's what he's telling them. Verse 27, he says, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And you need to know that right there he is not quoting a Bible verse. He's actually quoting uh, from a song written about Zeus in the year 600 B.C. And he's telling them this is not about Zeus. He's connecting this statement to the true God. He goes on to say, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. This is from a poem uh, written in around 330 B.C. Uh, by a Stoic who was a poet, and I think he probably didn't know it. Uh, <laughs> and here's the point. Paul was quoting these things that were embedded in their popular culture. This would have been like uh, uh, quotes from popular music or quotes from movies that everybody kind of knows. They've just heard it. Paul is well enough versed in their culture that he can, he can show them where they have stumbled onto truth and where they're asking some of the right questions. And then he goes from that, he does the next thing. He exposes the insufficiency of their false answers. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. He's just saying, if God is creator, you are foolish to think that you can reduce him to something you can hold in your hands. Again, Paul is asking these people, is your approach to life working for you? This is so vital. Before Paul presents Jesus as the answer, he wants to show them that their current answers are not working. Now, Francis Schaeffer called that blowing the roof off of someone's house. And what he means is that a person won't know they need to seek shelter in Jesus until you show them that what they're seeking shelter in currently isn't working. You've got to blow the roof off their shelter and Paul did this by asking questions, and we can too. And we don't have time. It would really be helpful to explore more deeply how this happens. But just let me say this. If you start with the questions people naturally have, if you find common ground, 
you just tell them about God, you're going to start getting yourself set up to talk about the questions that expose what is lacking in their lives. And you can help them, help them to see that. Again, God has placed eternity in all people's hearts. We are all incurably religious. And that means that people will be asking many of the right questions, coming up with the wrong answers until they meet Jesus. You say, well, I don't know if I can do this because, you know, I'm not like a trained pastor. Um, I don't know as much as Paul. So what do I do? Let me give you one word answer. I want you to write this down. Are you ready? Study. Some of you don't like that. Too bad. Here's what I'm saying. If you really love somebody, won't you figure out how to communicate something important to them? I mean, how could you actually believe the gospel and then be lazy about learning how to tell somebody else about it? I'll give you an illustration of what I mean here. Uh, I don't know sign language. I have never been interested in taking the time to learn sign language. You want to know why? Because nobody who's really close to me, nobody in my life is deaf. I guarantee you if one of my children could not hear, I would know how to sign. Because I'd want to communicate with them. And if you love people, and if you believe the gospel, doesn't it follow that you will figure out to the best of your ability every possible way that you can communicate it to them better? That's a good place for an amen, I'm just telling you. (laughs) See, if you aren't learning how to communicate the gospel to people around you in ways that are effective, then one of two things is true. Either you don't believe the gospel is true first, or second, you don't care about those people. We need to take the time to study and learn. Finally, really quickly, let me give you the last thing. Uh, When we meet people where they are, we never stop proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. If you go back to verse 18, notice that Paul, it says, was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And I just want to make it clear that there is nothing I've said today uh, that is intended to communicate to you that our mission is about methodology. None of this precludes the reality that the gospel and the doctrines that the Bible teaches about God and about our faith are central. They are foundational. The message is preeminent. We need to know that. That's not what we're saying here at all. That does not get set aside. Uh, Paul does two things that we must always do. You can write them down really quickly. First, he declares the objective truth of the gospel. Paul was willing to get up in the marketplace and say Jesus and say resurrection. He was basing his teaching on historical event that took place. In fact, let me just real uh, quickly list for you the, the key components of his message. You can write these phrases down. Paul says, and you can look it up later and, and see where it goes. In his message, Paul says, God is a creator. That's number one. Number two, God is the sustainer of life. Third, God is ruler of the nations. Fourth, God is knowable. Fifth, God is the father of humanity. And sixth, God is both the judge and the rescuer. Paul tells them, You're going to get judged. He doesn't shy away from that. And so Paul and we must communicate the objective truth of the gospel. Secondly, Paul lifts up Jesus subjectively and personally. Notice it says he was preaching the good news about Jesus. He doesn't say Jesus Christ, which is his title. He emphasizes Jesus as a person and Jesus, this person, calls everyone to know and love him. And I think this is so powerful today because in our postmodern age, people everywhere are starving 
for relationships. One of the hooks in postmodern thought that we can connect into is postmodern people tend to see life in relational terms and they want relationships. But have you noticed so many people can't seem to make meaningful relationships? They can't find what they're looking for. And we have what they're looking for. And so we can tell them. See, what Paul wanted for these Athenians is what we must long for, for all the people in our cities. We want them to know Jesus and fall in love with Jesus, to know how much Jesus loves them. We want them to, we want to say to them, the only way you'll ever be free from the idols in your life is if you are ravished by Jesus, you fall in love with Jesus. That's what Paul was saying when he calls them to repentance in verse 30. That's what Paul is saying when he tells them a day is coming. Please, friends, listen to me, he says. Verse 31, day is coming when God is going to come as judge. He's going to judge the world by Jesus, who he has raised from the dead. Now, maybe you're asking, this all sounds okay, Pastor Mike, but will it work? Well, it depends on what you mean by work. Because Paul got three reactions. Look at the last three verses. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Our postmodern world doesn't think that Christianity has what they are looking for, and some of them will sneer. But we know that they think that because they have turned from God in the rebellion. They are captive to their idols. And our calling is to get out into the marketplace and to keep connecting with those who, like these here, say they want to know more. You have some people like that in your life. They haven't said no, but they haven't said yes. They're open to more. Our calling is to get out there and tell them and to know in confidence, trusting in the Lord, that as we do that, some are going to believe. Some are going to trust. Some are going to follow. Again, all around us, people are searching. They are lost. And we know that Jesus is their only hope. Here's the question, Southwinds. Will we be a sent people? Will we be a people who actually will take the time, who will actually expend the energy, who will actually do the work that it takes to engage them, to understand them, so that we can tell them about the Jesus we love in a way that they will understand? That's the question. And only you and I in our lives can give the answer. What will it be? Will you bow your heads? We're going to pray together. Father God, uh, we give you thanks today for your truth and for these reminders from Paul's life that even in a world that seems so hostile to you, even in a world that seems so hard, that we can, in your power, find ways to share your truth, and your love. And we can trust that some will believe. Encourage us, Father, strengthen us to obey you. Give us wisdom to share. And may many come to faith in you. May many come to know Jesus. We ask this in his name, the name above all names, the name of Jesus. And all God's people together said,